Well, tonight's Dharma talk is on awakening faith. And it's dedicated to those few of us here that might now and then experience self-doubt. So. <laughs> it's interesting to me that the Buddha, after um, you know, offering the most basic teachings of mindfulness and compassion, described what he called the spiritual faculties. And the very first of the spiritual faculties, and the, oh, these faculties are the natural expressions of our spirit that arise when, we, when we've learned to get quiet and pay attention. And the very first is faith. And it's interesting to me because it's such a uh, crisis for most of us that even when we're not in major self-doubt, there's just a way of going through the day that we can trip ourselves up by not really trusting. Now, the Buddha taught most basically about suffering and freedom from suffering. And sometimes suffering is interpreted as being major, big-time anguish, and that's certainly true. The suffering of major loss when people we love die, or deep, deep fear or terror. But there's also a kind of low-key suffering that's also suffering. And it's... um, it's the kind of suffering when we're not able to be fully who we are. And it's something we all know about. It's that sense of, of not really being able to express how much we love each other, or not feeling really creative in our work situations, or in some way feeling like we're kind of stuck on automatic and, and not dropping below the surface, that we're just caught in being habitual. And it sometimes takes shape as a subtle sense of just disappointment. Life just isn't flavorful or colorful. And sometimes in a, in a kind of depression. And what's interesting is even when we're presumably happy, kind of just cruising along, we can still sense, if we pay attention, a slight contraction. And the voice of that contraction is, well, either I don't deserve this, or it's not going to last anyway, or just some fear around it. It can be quite slight. And as the Buddha described it, any of these sufferings, either either the object sufferings of, you know, real raw pain, or this very slight contraction of something might not be quite right, comes from being identified as a separate self that in some way we feel apart from the rest, that we don't quite belong. And out of that separate self feeling, there's these ideas about who we are. And generally those ideas have in them something about we're not enough. We're not quite okay, we're not safe, we're not complete, we're not whole. The flavor is not trusting who we are. Now it's reinforced by the culture. We're in a culture where to be okay, we have to do things and look a certain way. It's our path to belonging. In order to really belong and be embraced, we have to have good personalities or look good or do really good works or in some way be really successful. You know how Lily Tomlin put it, 
in her one-woman show in D.C. some years ago. She said, I always knew I wanted to be somebody, but I guess I should have been more specific. Right? Some of you might have noticed in the paper a few days ago there was an article on the new generation of college application forms and how there's different kinds of questions these days. Like one of them is, does a frog really hear? Prove it in this essay, <laughs> you know, things like that. Well, this is um, an essay written by a high school student in his application to college. And this question was, tell us anything significant in your life. Dear friends in the admissions department, how can I describe myself? I'm a dynamic figure often seen scaling walls and crushing ice. I've been known to remodel train stations on my lunch breaks, making them more efficient in the area of heat retention. I translate ethnic slurs for Cuban refugees at times. I've written award-winning operas. I manage time efficiently. I can tread water for three days in a row. I woo women with my sensuous and godlike trombone, trombone playing. I can pilot bicycles up severe inclines with unflagging speed, and I cook 30-minute brownies in 20 minutes. <laughs> I'm an expert in stucco, a veteran in love, and an outlaw in Peru. I once single-handedly defended a small village in the Amazon from a horde of ferocious ants. I play bluegrass cello and was scouted by the Mets. When I'm bored, I build large suspension bridges in my backyard and enjoy urban hang gliding. <laughs> On Wednesdays after school, I repair electric appliances free of charge. I'm an abstract artist, a concrete analyst, and a ruthless bookie. Critics worldwide swoon over my original line of corduroy evening wear. <laughs> I don't perspire. I bat 400, children trust me. I once read Paradise Lost, Moby Dick, and David Copperfield in one day and still had time to refurbish the entire dining room. I know the exact location of every food item in the supermarket and I have performed covert operations for the CIA. I sleep, but only infrequently and usually in a chair. The laws of physics do not apply to me. I've made extraordinary four-course meals using only a toaster oven. I've won bullfights in San Juan, cliff diving competitions in Sri Lanka, and, a spell and spelling bees at the Kremlin. I've played ha Hamlet. I've performed open-heart surgery. I have spoken with Elvis. But I have not yet gone to college. Please consider accepting me. <laughs> so we come from that kind of a society, you know, what we are supposed to be and what we're supposed to do. So we get habituated, and there's this daily sense of, of striving in some way to be okay and get through the day and have that be okay. We have these standards to meet. And frequently, for many of us, there's a, a subtle tug that we're not quite matching up. The truth is when we kind of review how our days are, that there's not so many moments of really getting off the merry-go-round and arriving here. And I don't mean moments of solemn silence, but of that quality of presence that and Th Thomas Merton's words are that in some way we can sense the transparent sacredness in any part of the dance of life that we can look at a tree or hear a sound or look into the eyes of the person we're with or just feel the aliveness of these bodies 
And there's a sense of the sacred. There's enough presence to really receive what's happening. So we tend to be kind of leaning forward into things, trying to accomplish. But we wouldn't be here. Not, there's not one person that would be here if we hadn't had glimpses, had a deep intuition or sense of the sacredness. We all have that. We all know about that. The challenge is that we glimpse the sacred. We feel a sense of awe at beauty, are the absolute incredible mystery of another being and of love. And we sense that. But what we don't do is stop fully enough to know that that's who we are. That when we're loving someone or feeling awe, it's not held in such a space that we know that the one who's loving and the one who's awed is sacred space. We tend to think of ourself as kind of other than that, our witnessing, but not sacredness. So we go back and forth. We get these glimpses of, of what is true, of deep presence, and then we kind of get relocked into the conditioning to think we're not enough, we should be more, something's wrong, something's missing. Now this is written by Wilson Van Dusen and it's called Returning to the Source. It's from his book. He writes that the experience of the divine is not rare and difficult to obtain, but our understanding really needs improvement and realization. And he says, I'm a lifelong and natural mystic. I've known the direct experience of the divine countless times. What is it like to be a mystic in this world? In part, it's sad. Mystics can go through a long period in which they have experiences of the divine, but they remain unsure. Once, after I gave a talk in a church, an old woman waited until the crowd of people who came up to me afterward cleared. I saw that she was not long for this world. Acting very circumspectly, she recited a short dream in which an amazing golden sun came to her, and then she asked if it was God. I first thought of my standard reply. Well, we would need to explore the dream and see what was in it. But then I was struck by the total emotional impact of the larger situation. This old woman is dying, and it matters very much to her if she has met God, even once in this life. So I said, yes, it was God. And we both broke into tears. But how sad. She had the marks of a very spiritual person whose life was embedded in God, and yet she asked desperately of once she met him. To me, she represents most of mankind. She's already well on her way, but she does not recognize the signs. So when the Buddha described faith, this knowing who we are, as kind of the first manifestation that comes out of becoming more present, more awake. He was talking about the faith that it's not out there, it's not down the road. It's not somewhere else, it's not in someone else. That that which we seek, that which is, that we cherish, that sense of the divine is right here now who we are. 
our truest nature. Now this is David White, just listen to this. He writes on faith. He says, I want to write about faith, about the way the moon rises over cold snow night after night, faithful even as it fades from fullness, slowly becoming that last curving and impossible sliver of light before the final darkness. But I have no faith myself. I do not give it the smallest entry. Let this then, my small poem, like a new moon, slender and barely open, be the first prayer that opens me to faith. So let me ask you to reflect for a moment. And the question I'd like you to reflect on is, what is it that you can have faith in? What is it that you can trust? and to keep on reflecting on it, but just to open it, if there's anyone that would like to share, and we can hear from a handful, just in a few words, what can you trust? What can you have faith in? Anyone? I know we have faith in some, something, somewhere. So what is it? Louder? War in oranges. Faith in oranges. <laughs> Anyone for apples or <laughs> anything else? <laughs> Trusting your love for a sibling that you care about very much. Ah, but will it? I mean, how do you know? Did you all hear faith that the sun will come up tomorrow? Do you know that? Faith the sun will be there whether we can see it or not. How do you know that? Okay, so this, this is good because I'm going to invite you to sense when you, if you sense faith in something, what lets you know? Is it an idea? others. Yeah. I'm sorry? Life continuing. Physical life ending. That things go on, that things end. That things change. Faith that things change. Beautiful. That all things are as they should be that the Lakotas, just so you know, don't have a word for hope in their language. And they say that it's because they have this trust that things are perfect as they are. Others. Faith and desire. What about desire? Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so this is a faith that desire exists, that this conditioning to want to want and hold on exists. I'm sorry? Faith in experience. What about it? That it, it's real or it exists or... So for you, you can have faith that experience will let you know what you like more, what you don't like, what seems better, what seems worse, more factual. What we find when we reflect is that there's some things we can't have faith in. We can't have faith that we're not going to experience pain. We can't have faith that we're not going to get sick. We can't have faith that we're not going to die. We can't have faith that we're not going to lose the people that we cherish. One person wrote that religion is an inoculation against the mystery. We can't even have faith in some of the ideas that we hold so dear. So that makes it hard because the things that we're habitually wanting to make life safe we can't have faith in. Do you understand? So what can we have faith in? I can say for myself that I went through uh, a number of years of therapy when I was in my 20s because I came face to face with this sense that I couldn't trust myself. You know? And the evidence was, well, I've hurt people, I'm hurting people now and I'll continue to hurt people. You know, not rape, pillage, plunder hurt, but you know, hurt. <laughs> Emotionally. And so it was a really agonizing period of time where I just couldn't kind of make peace with the fact that, as, as one person mentioned, uh, grasping is, desire is, aversion is, that these conditioned experiences were a part of who I was and am, and that I couldn't trust myself. When the Dalai Lama was at a uh, gathering with some teachers from the West, he was asked what it is that we most need, we students of the West. And his response was this, he says that what we need to, to have is trust in the power of our heart and awareness to awaken through all circumstances. Just reflect on that power of our heart, trusting in the power of our heart and awareness to awaken through all circumstances. Trusting that our nature is awakening. We don't, we don't know about anything else really. I mean, when you think about it, everything else we know about through thoughts, we know about, well, the sun rose yesterday, so, and it's been raising quite a number of days, so it should raise tomorrow, right? But what do we really know? We just know right now, awareness, that awakening happens. The Buddha described it, that our deepest nature is this wakeful, open-hearted awareness. 
and that we have all these ways, as have been described, of desire and fear and mistrust, grasping and aversion and excitement, all these ways of experience, and they're part of who we are. But as long as we are identified with just a set of those waves, as long as we are trusting just a set of thoughts or ideas, there's no real peace, because the truth of who we are is the ocean. We are this wakefulness, this love. And anything smaller that we identify with is vulnerable and at risk. So what happens is we have to ask ourselves, you know, is anything missing this moment? I mean, if you really pay attention right now, is there anything missing? Go ahead and try that. Just take a moment to reflect in a very direct way on your experience. Be here as fully as you know how. Is anything missing? If we come up with something is missing, we're off in thoughts. As soon as we begin to think about things, we construct a sense of a self that needs something more or is in some way deficient. But if we take refuge just in this moment, is there anything missing? The path of spiritual awakening has been described as a shift in identity, that we're shifting from these ideas of a self, from these waves of feeling deficient or feeling like people aren't liking us or that we should be more or do more, to a sense of that awareness that includes it all. So when we have faith in who we are, we're having faith in the ocean. It's not ego inflation. It's not we're having faith in being a super person. You know, there's a wonderful Serbian quote and it says, be humble for you are made of dung. Be noble for you are made of stars. Aren't they both true? We're of this earth and we're of the stars. So as we wake up, our faith deepens in this kind of truth of our identity. At the beginning, there's what's called blind faith. And blind faith is when something inspires us and it fills us with brightness or love or devotion. And we get a kind of intuition of the big picture. We read something, we hear something, we just get a flash that this small self we've been identifying with isn't all there is. There really is this wakefulness, this boundlessness that we belong to. We get a flash of it because of something we've read or seen. And verified faith, the second category, is when we have direct experiences that reinforce that glimpse. Where more and more there's a sense of being present and in that presence, having this kind of dropping away of the smallness and relaxing into the stream and knowing we belong. And that's verified faith. The third type of faith is unshakable faith. 
And that's full, genuine realization. It's when the faith that we have is verified from the deepest levels of intuitive wisdom. What happens with unshakable faith is that there has been enough stabilizing in this open awareness of being the ocean that includes the waves that there's more of a sense of who we are that way than the old familiar small self that had to fight the good fight and always be better. And it's not a sudden thing from what I've noticed for most of us. This is kind of a gradual deepening and we have things that happen in our lives, little kind of traumas that will have us recontract into that small sense of a limited self. And we'll think, gosh, I haven't developed any faith or any real sense of anything when we're in the midst of that. We feel totally lost. But it just doesn't last that long because something will kind of begin to relax and we'll see some beauty or feel our hearts soften. And remember that who we are is bigger than that. And after a certain amount of remembering, what becomes more real is a sense of love and wakefulness. That becomes more the reality of who we are. Being fully awake is living in this unshakable faith. Living in it. Living in that, that kind of trust in who we are. Living out of it. Speaking from it. Moving from it. Some of you know the poet Ryokan. He writes, Define the Buddhist law, drift east and west, come and go, entrusting yourself to the waves. When we're in a place of unshakable faith, moment after moment there's this quality of entrusting ourselves to this life. What makes it possible? Well, this life we're entrusting ourselves is no different than who we are. We're just letting go into who we are, moment after moment. There's a sense of physically letting go, of the body kind of relaxing that body of fear and relaxing back into the stream. And there's a mental letting go of any idea that sets us apart from each other and the world around us. Energetically, there's just a sense of rejoining the stream. Now let's just uh, reflect again so this isn't a bunch of words and ideas. If you will, just to sit up and take a few full breaths and close your eyes. And this is a reflection on what it means to entrust yourself to the waves. Experiment right this moment. Feel a full sense of presence and experiment. What is it like to entrust yourself to the waves of this moment? To entrust yourself with your body and your heart. in your mind.
the mind gets distracted, if there's contraction, re-entrust yourself. Surrender again. Explore. What's it like to really entrust yourself to the actuality of this moment? To let go into this moment? Who are you when entrusting your being this way? Wherever you are this moment, again, drop in. Re-entrust. Surrender into this moment. What's it like? What did you notice, anyone? Could you all hear that? (laughs) And you're just acting on it, that's wonderful. (laughs) So what was noticed is that when letting go into the moment, it becomes okay to express when normally your habit would be to not, to withhold. Right, not separating yourself. Good. What else did you notice? Okay, this is good. Did, did you all hear? that it's nice to relax into the pleasant, gentle waves of a a warm, safe room. But what about a wave of fear? A wave that you think if you let go into, you could die. What about those waves? Do you just entrust yourself to those? Anyone have a response? What's your intuition on that? Speak loud if you can. So the response was when you do entrust yourself, it goes away, it changes, it moves on to something else. Anybody else? (laughs) 
So it's an intimate adventure in whatever the wave you entrust yourself by living that wave fully, whether it's fear or pleasantness. Okay. Anyone else? Could you all hear that? That there's no problem if you're not attached to your body. <laughs> that you can just let go and sure, you die and get reborn and die and get reborn into the next moment and the next moment. But where's the problem? If we have a self that we're trying to protect, right? Then we have to resist and fight and struggle and defend. Now, just to, this could be, we could stay on this one for a while because this is, gets really interesting. The Buddha's teachings were, and are, to open fully to whatever wave is presenting, to live it fully. But they're also to be intelligent, which means, let's say, the wave that's arising that you're feeling fully is somebody that's coming at you with a knife. Does um, entrusting yourself to the wave mean you just kind of say, you know, come get me? (laughs) The, the teachings are not to um, be stupid, you know. It's to feel fully what's happening and respond intelligently. So you can entrust yourself to this moment, but respond in a way that completely, you know, reveres and tries to take care of this particular life form. It doesn't mean you have to, you know, sacrifice your life. The truth is that we respond to our life in a much more wise and compassionate way when we have entrusted ourselves to this moment's wave. And that's the, I think, the meaning of Rio Khan's poem, that to keep letting go and opening into what is and to very wisely respond if we're called on to respond. If there's a physical riptide, <laughs> then of course we respond to it. A lot of what we call meditation training is really this practice of letting go into what is, of entrusting ourselves to the ways. And it comes in kind of two distinct modes of awareness training. And the first part of entrusting ourselves to the wave is a, a recognition, a deep recognition of what's happening. You can't let go into something if you don't know what's going on. And so this is called clear seeing. And a lot of Vipassana training is to recognize when we have the veil of thoughts and then see behind it what's actually going on. As it's described, as long as we're living in kind of a conceptual realm, we're one step removed. We're not really recognizing the waves of what's going on. We're seeing pictures about them and hearing sound bites about them. Carlos Castaneda describes it this way. He says, we have this inner dialogue and it sustains our known world of self. It sustains our ideas about how it is. So we can't see clearly the waves until we can open up outside of conceptual mind. And that's no small thing, given, as most of you know, that we spend huge portions of our life often thoughts. So one 
very major part of any awareness training is to be able to recognize the thought process and when appropriate, and this doesn't mean all the time, be able to let go and open into a much more big and mysterious and immediate sense of the world. David Audubon writes, if you see a bird and it's different than the description in the field guide, believe the bird. (laughs) What is it we're going to trust? Our ideas about things? Are this immediate moment of, yes, there's wakefulness. What can you trust about right this moment? Just your senses. Just this here. Now the biggest trance we get into, where we get most caught in this veil of believing conceptual mind is the trance about who we think we are and what's wrong with us. And we reinforce it all the time. We go through the world comparing ourselves to other people, We go through the world comparing ourselves to ourselves and we have these standards and we live in that dialogue more than any other dialogue. It's the biggest trance. And some of you have heard this story by Ed Brown, but it's so wonderful. It it fits in, so I'm going to read it tonight. And it's called Biscuits Beyond Compare. When I first started cooking at Tassajara, I had a problem. I couldn't get my biscuits to come out the way they were supposed to. I'd follow the recipe and try variations, but nothing worked. These biscuits just didn't measure up. Now, growing up, I had made two kinds of biscuits. One was from Bisquick and the other from Pillsbury. For the Bisquick biscuits, you added milk to the mix and then blobbed the dough in spoonfuls onto the pan. You didn't even need to roll them out. The biscuits from Pillsbury came in a kind of cardboard can. You wrapped the can on the corner of the counter and it popped open. Then you twisted the can open more and put the pre-made biscuits on a pan and baked them. I really liked those Pillsbury biscuits. (laughs) Isn't that what biscuits should taste like? Mine just weren't coming out right. It's wonderful and amazing the ideas we get about what biscuits should taste like or what a life should look like. Compared to what? Canned biscuits from Pillsbury? (laughs) Leave it to Beaver? People who ate my biscuits could extol their virtues, eating one after another, but to me, these perfectly good biscuits weren't right. Finally, one day came a shining, shifting into place, an awakening. Not right compared to what? Oh, my word, I'd been trying to make a canned Pillsbury biscuit. (laughs) Then came an exquisite moment of actually tasting my biscuits without comparing them to some previously hidden standard. They were weedy, flaky, buttery, sunny, earthy, real, as Rilke's sonnet proclaims. They were incomparably alive, present, vibrant, just real. In fact, much more satisfying than any memory. These occasions can be so stunning, so liberating. These moments when you realize your life is just fine as it is, thank you. Nothing's missing. Only the insidious comparison to a beautifully prepared, beautifully packaged product made it seem insufficient. Trying to produce a biscuit, a life, with no dirty bowls, no messy feelings, no depression, no anger, was so frustrating. Then savoring, actually tasting the present moment of experience, how much more complex and multifaceted, how unfathomable, a thought, a feeling, ants crawling on the ground in the sunlight. As Zen students, we spent years trying to make it look right, trying to cover the faults, conceal the messes. We knew what the BizQuick Zen student looked like, calm, buoyant, cheerful, energetic, deep, profound. Our motto, as one of my friends said, was, 
looking good. (laughs) We've all done it, trying to look good as a husband, wife, or parent, trying to attain perfection, trying to make Pillsbury biscuits. Well, to heck with it, I say, wake up and smell the coffee. How about some good old home cooking, the biscuits of today? Handle each ingredient with sincerity and wholeheartedness. The results will take care of themselves. Savor them. I like that so much because it's sometimes invisible how it's going on that we're kind of assuming something's not quite right about who we are. And that sets off this whole chain of kind of mistrusting our lives. So our practice is to begin to notice when that's going on, when that backdrop of something's wrong is there. But because it's such an insistent trance, it takes a real commitment to pulling the curtain, to keep sensing, oh, thinking, thinking, judging thoughts, blaming thoughts, comparing thoughts, and then to pull the curtain and sense what is true this moment in my body, in my heart. There's no way to touch faith, to really sense what's real, without experiencing an embodied awareness. If we're off trying to think our way through it, trying to convince ourselves we're okay, that we compare well to others, it'll never work. Our way home is through our bodies. It says, Henry David Thoreau wrote, he says, allow your life to stay close to the channel in which it flows. Come back to these bodies. So it's a central part of practice that we train to recognize when we're off in thoughts, in blaming, in judging, and come back and feel this body in a very immediate way. The training is to stop moving so much, to come and be still and sense what's true. Now, some years ago, I read um, a book by Joko Beck, who's a wonderful Buddhist woman, Zen teacher. And she described this coming into embodied awareness, this pathway home. And I'd like to read to you a description that she wrote. She described it that we have this kind of raw pain or contraction that's habitually there, deep down and that it's covered up with all this dialogue that's going on. She calls that the imaginary film. And that we're lost in this movie, and what happens when we come out of the movie and into the bodies, we have to kind of come to terms with this contraction, this feeling of rawness, okay? One can indeed say that what should be perceived under this imaginary film is a certain profound sensation of cramp, of a paralyzing grip, of a mobilizing cold, and that it is on this hard couch, immobile and cold, that our attention should remain fixed, as though we tranquilly stretched out our body on a hard but friendly rock that was exactly molded to our form. Our practice is just to stay with what is beneath the imaginary film and rest there, And when we begin to do that, we start to have a clue. We start to sense the sensation of life at this very moment. No matter what experiential psychotherapy or meditation practice, if we're going to come to terms with the waves that we most fear, 
We need to be able to, in some way, soften around and make room for this contraction, this deep kind of tightness that is in us, that's called the body of fear. There's no way around it. Now, it's not a kind of um, tragedy that that's there. All life forms feel separate, feel vulnerable, and have tension around that fear that something's going to go wrong. But in order to be free, we need to come face to face with that and meet it. And there is no way to lie down on that icy couch unless we do it with enormous kindness. The only way to face the fear of feeling separate is with a real deep compassion. So this is the second part of training. Our first part of training is to see what's going on, see that we're thinking, let go of the thoughts, come into what's happening. But the second phase or interdependent part of of Buddhist practice is this opening of the heart to embrace what we see. Mother Teresa described it that when she would see those who were suffering or impoverished or dying, what she was seeing was Christ in his distressing disguise. Can we see the waves of fear, of jealousy, of depression, of whatever arises as as an expression of this divine being, of this dance, and hold it with compassion? Now sometimes the sense of self is so small and tight it's very hard to be compassionate to what we encounter. And it's part of our practice to reach out to each other to be supported, to our larger sense of belonging to nature, to beauty. Let me read you from Joanna Macy. So many of us know this power of being in nature in natural surroundings, and having our sense of smallness and separation be softened because we can sense that in nature there's a mirror to what's sacred. We sense a sense of belonging. And this is what Joanna Macy writes about. This is a poem she actually took from Simeon the theologian and substituted for the words Christ and God, the words earth and planet. So just reflect on this. See if, as you do, you can feel it in your body. We awaken in Earth's body as Earth awakens our bodies. And my poor hand is Earth. She enters my foot and is infinitely me. I move my hand, and wonderfully, my hand becomes Earth, becomes all of her. For our planet is indivisibly whole, seamless in her planethood. I move my foot, and at once she appears like a flash of lightning. Do my words seem blasphemous? Then open your heart to her, and let yourself receive the one who is opening to you so deeply. For if we genuinely love her, we wake up inside Earth's body, where all our body, all over, every most hidden part of it, is realized in joy as her, and she makes us utterly real. And everything that is hurt, everything that seemed to us dark, harsh, shameful, maimed, ugly, irreparably damaged, is in her transformed 
and recognized as whole, as lovely and radiant in her light. We awaken as the beloved in every last part of our body. So this practice of touching what is real includes sensing what we belong to, this earth, this beautiful nature, the nature of each other. And the Buddhist meditations that directly awaken the heart help us to deepen our trust in this connectedness. So we practice the metta meditation, so many of you know it, where the most basic part of it is to bring to mind what we love. And by bringing intentionally to mind what we love, we awaken to loving, to connectedness. As part of closing, I'd like you to just experiment again. Just sitting up. And take a moment to feel this body, this body of clay, as some say, of the earth. And also sense as your spine rises, it comes from the earth and it rises up to the heavens. And you can sense the space around you and the sounds of the earth and the stars. And take some moments to think of someone you love to bring them to mind. As you bring this person to mind, see them in your mind's eye and feel a sense of their presence, reflecting on what it is about them that most evokes your love. What are you loving? And as you sense what it is you're loving, let the feeling of loving be sensed quite directly in your heart. So you can breathe in and soften there. And just let yourself live that love for this being. including in your awareness this question, who is it that's loving right now? And then just entrust yourself to the waves of whatever you experience. Let go into who is loving. All beings, 
by nature are Buddha, as ice by nature is water. Apart from water, there is no ice. Apart from beings, no Buddha. How sad people ignore the near and search for truth afar. Those who hear this truth even once and listen with a grateful heart, treasuring it, revering it, gain blessings without end. Much more, those who turn about and bear witness to self-nature, self-nature that is no nature, go far beyond mere doctrine. How boundless and free is the sky of awareness. How bright the full moon of wisdom. Truly, is anything missing right now? Nirvana is right here before our eyes. This very place, the lotus land, this very body, the Buddha. In these last few moments, feeling the heart and feeling this basic nature to love and honor life. Allowing whatever arises in awareness to be touched with kindness. The people of your life, whoever comes up, just hold them in that space of heart. Every moment of connecting with love and presence is a moment that deepens our faith. Gradually we awaken to sense our true nature, loving, wakeful, spacious, present. We close chanting, ah, the sound current of the heart, And just inhale deeply and then chant it, and when you run out of breath, begin again to chant it. And if you'd like to let the sounds harmonize, just to feel our connection with the sound. Please inhale.
our presence and practice be of benefit to all beings. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.